to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We come to you every week and bring to you the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves in doctors' waiting rooms and lounges all across the country. This show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is a non-for-profit 501c3 organization. It's the only physician-led, physician-run healthcare think tank in the United States. It's run entirely by practicing physicians. So we have the information that you need so that you can fight for your healthcare freedom. And we stand for the doctor-patient relationship and healthcare freedom for all Americans. This is your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. And I have uh, the distinct pleasure to bring to, to you today uh, some of my uh, favorite people. We, we are um, on, on a remote location with today's show in the studios of uh, my co-host, Dr. Michael Karuchik. And we're also joined today by another member from our foundation, the uh, treasurer of the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, Dr. Dick Armstrong. So, uh, Mike, welcome back to, to co-host <laughs> the you, show sir. with me. It's been a long time. It has. I'm delighted to have the three of us together. Uh, I think we do some great shows this way. So, uh, you know, being able to do this and, and do it in my own house is, uh, is really kind of cool. So I, I hope this really leads to a lot of flexibility and a lot of really neat things that we can do um, in the future with the technology that's available. It is. And this is the, the essence of what we do. It's chat radio, and, and everybody wants to know what we chat about. And, uh, Dick, welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. Well, it's great to be here. I just had this thought that maybe we're the three musketeers of American healthcare. <laughs> well, there's, there's a, we have a lot of partners, but, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, the hard work that... Uh, the two of you do, along with uh, some of our other uh, members of our foundation that really, uh, I think, uh, benefit doctors and patients all over the country. And we, we, we you know, the, the people don't realize that the things that we do are, um, are it's, it's work that we do outside of our practices. Uh, and and uh, we, we spend our free time doing things like going to Washington, D.C. or going to state capitals to talk about the issues that we stand for, like direct primary care or maintenance of certification. I know that Mike is going back to Washington, D.C. He was there um, at, the, uh, at the end of uh, 2015, and he's going back again to, uh, to talk with uh, uh, Congressman Pete Sessions. Indeed, it's um, stuff seems to happen so fast sometimes that you don't uh, know how you're going to keep up with it all. And uh, yeah, there'll be a, a meeting uh, March 21st and 22nd in Washington D.C. with Pete Sessions and the the rest of the crew of docs that he has assembled together. Uh, I'm equally excited to be going up to Washington D.C. to meet with some folks uh, at CMS, uh, including the acting administrator Andy Slavitt, due to a unique set of uh, events and uh, circumstances. Yeah, the, the, the CMS issue, Dick, you know, I think that uh, there's not a lot of people who are paying attention to what's happened with uh, CMS and the changes that have happened 
with meaningful use. There's a first of all, without getting into the weeds, um, I, I don't know if the average listener even understands the the uh, problems that the physician community faces. Um, with regard to regulations and, and meaningful use is one of them. And can you just give uh, everyone a, a, an idea of, of what this issue is all about? Sure. And, and I, I will back up a little bit and say that my Three Musketeers comment was tongue-in-cheek. We, <laughs> we have a whole host of people around the country, and we're gathering more incredibly uh, um, valuable people who are working hard along with us to promote uh, our ideas, uh, which re- which revolve around uh, freedom to practice medicine in the way that we'd like to. And back to meaningful use. Um, in 2009, because the government wanted uh, health care information technology to be stimulated as part of the stimulus bill, um, a portion of it was called the HITECH Act. And what this was intended to do is to stimulate the adoption of electronic medical records into hospitals and physicians' practices by giving people bonuses if they went through a program, a staged program called Meaningful Use. And it really was disconnected from what patients and doctors needed every day to take care of their patients because mostly it was a... um, it was a little bit of patient information stuck on top of the coding and billing system that we all use to get paid and to collect data. And many people feel that, that CMS's main objective was to collect data, not to help uh, help us care for patients. And I think that they're beginning to realize that. And so um, several things happened. One, uh, meaningful use was, or excuse me, um, in last year, uh, there was a push to um, uh, get rid of the old Medicare payment system called the sustainable growth rate, and it's, again, getting into the weeds uh, very deeply. But it was the formula that Medicare used to pay for for um, their Medicaid, or excuse me, their Medicare patients uh, for doctors and hospitals. Uh, and, well, not, not hospitals so much, I'm sorry. But the, um, the bottom line is, is that uh, if... If the sustainable growth rate had not been repealed, doctors would have been cut about 30% in this, in this fiscal year. So they, they passed this bill, for lack of um, a better way to put it, called MACRA, which, which is a big moniker, but they passed this bill to eliminate the sustainable growth rate, but they really didn't honestly tell the physicians in the country that attached to that bill was a new payment system that continued the Meaningful Use program. And so a few weeks ago uh, at a J.P. Morgan conference on healthcare, the acting director of CMS, Andy Slavitt, announced that um, the, the old Meaningful Use system was ending and that they were going to now start um, rolling out something, in quotes, better <laughs> because he thought that they had lost the doctors in the country. And all the, all the physicians rejoiced because they thought, aha, we finally have an ally. 
Well, it was rejoicing in the same way that uh, that you know prisoners in the in the gulag you know rejoice when the uh, when the commandant announces that there'll be you know extra cockroaches for dinner. I mean, you know, and that's when, what that's what Mike wrote that got Andy's attention, which yeah, is very interesting. Yeah, and it was you know you know sometimes you write stuff and you think well nobody's really going to read this and then someone does and it it, it astonishes and maybe even scares them. It's a good lesson that yeah. that uh, you. You have to be careful about what you put into print because it could it could either work in your favor or it can boomerang in your face. Yeah, and, and this time I think it, it worked in our favor I because so. uh, you know, in response to Andy Slavitt's comments, you know, both this notion that meaningful use was ending when really it wasn't; it was just the label that was ending, and then this other comment that he made about you know he was afraid that we were that he that the CMS was losing the hearts and minds of physicians and that we needed to get them back um, prompted me to write an open letter. And I put it on my blog and, you know, amazing the power of Twitter. I mean, you know, not that many people read my blog compared to the whole world, but if you put somebody's Twitter handle on something and you tweet the link, next thing you know, people are going there. And uh, within a couple of hours of posting the letter, I got a, a Twitter message from Andy Slavitt himself saying, you know, give me your email address and I will send you an answer. And he sent a very nice, gracious answer and said the letter was very thoughtful and he was quite confident it reflected the feelings of a lot of different people. And with a little bit of back and forth dialogue that's gone on the next couple of days, uh, you know, we are going to get together, I think, sometime during the month of March. It may or may not be the 21st when, um, when, um, We'll be up there for the meeting with uh, Representative Sessions, but uh, it, it will probably be within the next few weeks. And, uh, you know, if you take his comments and notes to me at face value, uh, there is a great deal of interest in hearing what we have to say. And uh, and we'll see. There's a, you know, as I said in the letter to him, there is a, uh, you know, there's a, a sort of a dual response here. Uh, you know, there is the response that says, hurrah, finally someone that listens. And then there's the more cynical response, which actually, by one particular survey, is the majority that says, look, this is all just political subterfuge. But uh, I feel like we need to give him the chance to make good on what he has to say. So we'll see. Dick, I think it's re- Oh, I was going to say we're coming up to a a, a break in in. We've got about two and a half minutes. So so I wanted to ask you a question. You know this change. You know meaningful use, and we've just touched on it briefly. But this whole change in in uh, what um, the, uh, the the reimbursement system is all about. What they really want to do is they want to get away from paying doctors for what they do in terms of um, actual work. Uh, They don't want to pay for episodes of work anymore. What they want to do is they want to pay for quality and they want to measure doctors and they want to get value for what um, they believe they're paying for. And this this is a hard argument to refute in a soundbite. And so... Can you can you give a, give everyone a, a sense of why that's this is a, a even though it sounds like it's a great idea is a dangerous concept? Well, there's several things behind this, and I think one of the one of the things people have to realize is that everyone 
that is watching what's going on with the budget of Medicare understands that Medicare is in trouble. And it's very difficult for the politicians to talk about, but if you just look at the statistics from the Medicare actuary, which is the accountant that, that gives reports on, a, on an annual basis about how Medicare is doing, the hospital portion of Medicare is due to have no more money by 2028. That's only 12 years away. So the Medicare system paying for now 55 million Americans, they have to figure out some way to reduce the amount of money they spend per patient in Medicare. And they've decided that the way to do that is to collect a tremendous amount of data on all these Medicare patients and then pay doctors based upon the value that they produce in the system, paying them to make them more efficient, to supposedly keep patients out of the hospital, to manage their chronic diseases better. And on the surface, it sounds great. You can't really blame them for looking at this and saying, well, that makes sense. You know, wouldn't it be better if we took better care of our patients, we kept them out of the emergency room, we kept them out of the hospital? But the, but the methods that they're putting in to do that are a little bit um, troublesome to doctors because what they're making doctors do essentially is ration care by keeping people from getting sometimes what the doctor might think that they need. Right, and and we're at we're at a break right now, Dick. So let's let's pick this up again when we come back into the doctor's lounge. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. This is your host, Dr. Hal Schurz, and I am happy to be doing the show today with my co-host, Dr. Michael Karuchik, and our guest, Dr. Dick Armstrong. And uh, before we uh, resume our conversation, I just wanted to give a, a, a plug for the joint meeting that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation is putting on in October with the... Uh, Texas Medical Association with the support of the Physicians Foundation. This is a, um, a uh, 
uh, meeting that uh, we are putting on on direct primary care. So it's going to appeal to the doctors listening in the audience. It's uh, a meeting that uh, will have uh, uh, continuing medical education credits, and it's going to have free tuition for the first 250 people who respond once we get it up there. So I want those of you who are interested in coming to Dallas October 14th and 15th and listening to the superstars of direct primary care talk about how to set up a practice, how to transition your practice into direct primary care to mark that those de- those two days off your calendar and plan to come to Dallas. It's going to be a unbelievable meeting. Um, it will be huge. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so Dick, before um, we uh, got to the break, we were um, just uh, talking about <clears throat> why the concept of uh, paying for uh, value sounds great on the surface, but it's a slippery slope. Well, it is a slippery slope because, um, well, a couple things. One, if you look at the economics of this, I don't think that there's enough savings in, in in doing this to get Medicare out of trouble. And that, that is a real in-the-weeds conversation and something that, that is, is for a longer, uh, a more detailed uh, thing. But I, I think that part of the problem, uh, just conceptually, is that Medicare is part of a larger third-party payment system. And when patients aren't paying for their own value, when somebody else is, then the other entity has to figure out what quality is, and that's the conundrum. They're having a hard time trying to figure out in this dynamic, changing healthcare system of ours from year to year, from month to month, what quality really looks like. Very difficult to measure. And I think, you know, um, Mike has talked a lot about that, and, and maybe he'd want to weigh in a little bit on, on what he thinks about the collection of large amounts of data when you really don't have an endpoint. Well, that's, you know, the, the question that stumps everybody, and, and I even had this moment in last week's show when I had Dr. Jim Bailey on, who's the author of this book called The End of Healing, and he says a lot of really good stuff, but occasionally you get the sense that he is bought into some of this, and at the very end of the show, the very last thing I asked him, because he was talking about that, you know, this is the darkest point before the dawn and things are going to get better because we're going to measure value and deliver payment based on value, and I asked him the question I ask a lot of people, which is, okay, how do you measure Value what in is healthcare. That? What is what value? Is, what is value? I mean, it's a difficult question, even in an economics 101 course, when you're not even talking about third-party payers or healthcare, that you can get lost in the weeds. You know, the first week of class in econ 101, talking about you know how value is defined, and you know the concept that value is really defined only relative to the value of other things, and and that's not even without a third-party payer. So if you add a third-party payer that isn't a witness to the transaction, right, the delivery of a service, and that the person receiving the service is not the person paying for the service, then you have this, you know, massive infrastructure dedicated to how value is determined after the fact when it's hard enough to determine value before the fact, you know, while you're there, if you're a witness to the transaction. So now we have these 
massive attempts to collect massive amounts of data and all of a sudden you know big data is going to be the salvation big data is going to be what leads us all out of the desert to the promised land and there's no method behind it there's no hypothesis there's no scientific method and you know in the end uh, none of this is is going to work and it's going to be a matter of just how you game the system just like the VA. And, and that's exactly right it's gaming the system because here's a a, a dirty little secret for everyone People lie. People lie about their outcomes. People lie about their data. If you just look at one metric that everybody talks about, and we all have heard this hundreds and hundreds of times, which is infant mortality in the United States, how the infant mortality in the United States is worse than 23 other countries around the world. Well, Again, it's how you measure data that allows you to make certain statements about what the results are. Because in these other 23 countries around the world, they don't count an infant death until they are term or in some cases, in some countries, until the child is three months old. In the U.S., any baby that comes out alive that dies is is an infant mortality. It could be a 23-week-old fetus. If they die after delivery, that's an infant mortality. So how you, how you even define data and how you report it, it influences what the outcome is and what the value is. And so the value to any particular person is different than it might be to a payer who's paying for the care because a patient may value the care of a doctor by their uh, their accessibility or their their willingness to listen but if a payer is is not that in that transaction they're only interested in one thing and that's that's spending the least amount of money and getting the biggest bang for their buck well, it gets right. And, go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, no, no. What I was going to say is the other thing that's difficult with these large systems and, and collecting huge amounts of data is the dynamics of our healthcare uh, system as well. I mean, if you look back at where breast cancer or say prostate cancer research and knowledge was even five years ago, it's not. It's everything has changed. Everything has changed incredibly, and yet. All of the data that they're collecting in the next uh, year or two years or three years on how healthcare is in the United States today, they will be promulgating rules that will supposedly be rolled out, say, three to five years from now when the data is meaningless. Yeah, and prostate cancer is an excellent, an excellent example, Dick, because what we do know is over the last 20 years, prostate cancer deaths in the United States have dramatically decreased. And the and the uh, there are more than um, just a, a few um, urologists who believe that's because of um, the um, the testing, the preemptive testing, prostate specific antigen or PSA. But because it resulted in more um, treatments than third party payers might want to pay for. They, they determined that 
that um, maybe you didn't really need to treat all prostate cancer and you can take a, a different approach towards it. And so here's again where the disconnect is between patients and third-party payers because people who have cancer, they, they don't want to sit and watch their cancer for the most part if given the choice. They want to get it taken care of. But third-party payers don't want to spend the money if the value to them is if it's not a good value proposition. So if you've got a 60-year-old who might not die from their prostate cancer but will live 20 years, the the third-party payer is not so much interested necessarily in the quality of life toward the end of their life as, as much as they are in making sure that they've gotten the best value. They don't want to pay for expensive treatments when when they know they can get away without having to do so. And that's and that's the disconnect between third party payers and and when patients are paying for their own care. One of the value-based methods of paying for care that they've uh, devised is called an accountable care organization. And in that organization, a group of physicians agrees to take care of a certain number of Medicare-covered lives uh, for a certain amount of money. And, in, and if they come in less than the amount of money paid for that certain amount of lives, then those doctors get a bonus. So this is an ethical dilemma because what happens then is the doctors are actually getting paid to spend less on the patient's care. And here's, and, it, and here's another ethical dilemma. If somebody is in the hospital and gets and gets treatment and they get discharged, if they have a problem after discharge and they need to come back to the hospital, that comes out of the pocket of the accountable care organization. But if they can reduce the number of readmissions to the hospital, they get a bonus. Well, for right. certain diagnoses, that, that, that's true for all hospitals, whether they're ACO or not, right? I think for that's, congestive that's heart failure, mm-hmm. oh, I forget what the other two are, diabetes, diabetes. Maybe, and, um, and, yeah. and there's a third one. But, yeah, now everyone is incentivized to game the system. And so if somebody comes in at 10 o'clock at night, 29 or 30 days after their discharge, now you have this, this awful incentive in place. You have this perverse incentive in place because they're forced to watch their statistics and it flies in the face of what you got to do for that and, living, breathing patient. And, and there are, there are um, actually unintended consequences to these policies. Oh, one, yeah. one of them that, that I, I um, just read about, I think maybe we all have read about this recently, about the patient who is in the... Uh, who's readmitted to the hospital, but they don't want to readmit the patient because it will hurt their statistics. So they keep them in an observational status, and they don't actually admit the patient to the hospital. And if that patient needs to wind up going to a rehab facility, Medicare won't pay for the rehab rehab visit because they weren't admitted back into the hospital. So so the patient gets stuck, a Medicare patient gets stuck with the tab for going to a rehab facility. And I was reading about several patients who were on the hook for as much as $70,000 for a a, a stay in a rehab facility under such a circumstance. Right. It's a catch-22. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, <laughs> that's the problem when you put these things in place where hospitals have to look so hard at their own ability to survive that they can't do what's best for the patient. And so then you have all these studies out there. We see it on the IT side, right, because there are all of these you know, health IT-based projects with home monitors and apps for your phone and stuff for the folks that are discharged with congestive heart failure or diabetes or something like that. And so they get all excited because they, in the studies, reduce the 30-day readmit rate but if you look out 90 days or six months, it makes no difference. And the, and the true, you know, was there any savings, any real savings in the cost of the care of those patients? No, there wasn't. But that's okay because they were able to cheat the 30-day readmit rule, which in a system like that, that's what you're gaming. It's all that matters. So how do we how do we get through to Andy Slavic with this kind of uh, these these thoughts, Dick? Well, I think that from what I've seen, um, he will be—he would be very cordial in a meeting. He, he would understand exactly what we're we're saying. The question is: Well, there's a couple problems. One, the legislation that has been passed lays out a path that he is supposed to um, to institute. You know what? Dick, Dick, I will cut you off. We're, we're, we're on a hard break. Up. We're on a hard okay. break. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. You're back in the doctor's lounge. This is Dr. Hal Schurz. My guests today are my co-hosts, Dr. Michael Karuchik and Dr. Dick Armstrong. And we were chatting about um, about CMS and uh and the uh, issues and, and problems and, and how we could uh, maybe make uh, some, some inroads into what CMS has in store for the doctor community and, and, and indirectly the patients around the country. So, so Dick, pick up your thought uh, about, uh, about where this might lead. Well, we were lucky enough to get uh, Andy Slavitt's attention, who's the current acting uh, director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and he has been very gracious and uh, said that he would be willing to meet with uh, Dr. Kruchek in D.C. next month. 
Now, the problem, I'm sure, is that he... He'll be very sympathetic uh, and listen, uh, and they are saying that they're listening to more doctors, but then they also have their marching orders from the legislation that's been passed that they have to institute, and they're, they're committed um, through HHS to, to moving into this value-based payment system. So the, the difficulty will be how do they move toward the value-based payment system without making uh, things in quotes, worse for the doctors and the patients. And hopefully we will be able to explain in some way to Mr. Slavitt why it's so important not to lose us again. Um, maybe Mike can pick up on that message. Well, you know, if you, again, if you take what he says at face value, they, they do want to listen. So I, I think the strategy will be not to blow them out of the water in one meeting, but probably to do some relationship building and I, I agree. get them to to like us, to trust us, to you know get us some credibility with a few conversations. Um, I'm thinking when I go up there in a few weeks that it may be just a little history lesson on the doctor's perspective on what's happened the last several years. Uh, I'm afraid if I just go up there and draw my sword and start talking about, you know, how bad value-based stuff is and that it'll never work and that kind of thing, I'm afraid we'll just lose them and that'll be the end of it. So, obviously, we'll all need to work together to come up with that strategy. But uh, on the front end, I think it's it's about relationship building and going nice and slow and, and, and getting them to like us and trust us first and then become a little stronger with the message perhaps. You know, I think One of the encouraging things he said in his email to you, Mike, was that he was not just listening to the, in quotes, Washington insider physicians. That's important uh, because True. about only, only about 15% of the doctors in the country are members of the American Medical Association and everyone assumes that the AMA speaks for the majority of American doctors, and that's just not simple. It's simply not true. About 85% of doctors are out here working every day and are not represented by the AMA. So if they understand that and they're willing to actually have a discussion about that, that'll be a good opening door. The other other thing that um, this is a great segue into what I'd like to talk about, but part of the uh, new macro law, which has to do with value-based uh, metrics and and quality is that there's going to be um, they're going to need physicians to be the arbiters of what um, the uh, quality metrics are going to be and um, and there seems to be very little doubt in the in the minds of those who follow this who are in the weeds that those arbiters are going to be the um, the the uh, boards, the specialty boards of the American Board of Medical Specialties, and um, this this leads to a huge problem that's going on right now. And I think this needs to be brought up to Mr. Slavitt um, when uh, when we're talking about who's going to be um, the arbiters of this and, and decide, you know, who which doctors are are um, you know problems or which doctors, how, how do you measure this, that we, we don't allow them to, uh, to tie this to some of the programs that these specialty boards are trying to uh, 
uh, impose on the physicians around the country. Um, specifically, I'm talking about maintenance of certification, and, and I think that this is something that we need to interject into that conversation. No doubt. Um, actually, maintenance of certification because of the American Board of Medical Specialties is written into the Affordable Care Act. And uh, the Secretary of HHS was mandated to uh, figure out a way to roll in maintenance of certification as part of the quality metrics uh, in any system that they develop. The other thing is, is that if people people don't know this, there's a thing called the National Quality Forum, which was uh, uh, founded by a previous president of the American Board of Internal Medicine. And in the macro law, the National Quality Forum was given an $80 million grant to develop these metrics. So, yes, they're involved directly. And, and the problem is that, uh, and we've talked about this on this show a number of times is that um, the maintenance certification uh, program as as uh, administered by the boards that comprise the American Board of Medical Specialties is, for lack of a better term, a shakedown. And it's benefiting people at the top of the boards, one of which is this person who is uh, the president of the national uh, um uh, quality 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 uh, foundation and um, the, uh, the 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 issue is that um, the these maintenance certification programs have never been shown to help um, improve quality to patients one bit there's not been one study that has shown any correlation to improved outcomes in patients if a doctor chose not to maintain their certification. And, and so what we're seeing, and we, we've talked to people that are um, our friends around the country, one doctor chose not to uh, renew um, their, their um, uh, maintain their certification. And what happened to that person, Dick? Well, it's a pediatrician in my state who, who just uh, was fed up and decided to become certified through a new alternative board that uh, Dr. Schurz happens to be a member of the board of the National Board of uh, Physicians and Surgeons. Um, And um, she just wrote a letter to her board of pediatrics and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. Well, unfortunately, what happens then is insurance companies use these um, these certifications and maintenance of certification programs to credential doctors for uh, their insurance panels. So she got a phone call last week from uh, Blue Care Network that said, uh, sorry, you can't see our patients anymore. Well, that's disturbing. And um, the good thing for her uh, is the contract really doesn't specify that it has to be the American Board of Medical Specialties. So uh, there is wiggle room to fight this legally, and we've, we've had other doctors in Michigan that have taken the taken up the, the cause and fought this, and the insurance company has backed down and said, oh, well, we, we, that's fine. We really didn't mean that. But more and more... More and more physicians around the country need to become activists in this way and push back on the insurance companies and say, you know, if I was if I was good enough to care for your patients until 12 o'clock midnight on the 3rd of December, why am I not good enough to care for your patients at 12.01? Well, here's, here's a question for the Brain Trust here. It, you know, these, the folks that support 
maintenance and certification often cite a public demand for <laughs> doctors to have more education than we already have. And I, I brought this up last week in, in something called a blab. We'll talk about that later on if we have time. But do you guys know of any documented public demand or any consumer organization that stood up and said your initial board certification plus 20 hours of continuing medication per year is somehow not enough? No, that's that's no. a straw man argument that they, they um, put forth so that they can go ahead and justify their programs. And and just, just to be clear, these are programs. Programs that are costing some doctors as much as three thousand dollars a year, because there are some doctors who are board certified in more than one board. They some doctors are double or triple boarded, and, and I know a few who actually are quadruple boarded. You know, these are usually hospital-based doctors who are internal medicine boarded, and they have boards in pulmonary and in in um, and in intensive care. And so they they spend a lot of money every year, but more importantly, they waste a lot of time. And in pediatrics, the things that they've got to do in order to um, maintain their certification are, are, are modules that the the American Board of Pediatrics makes them do, like hand washing modules. You know, this doctor who chose not to um, to uh, pay the uh, $1,200 to the American Board of Pediatrics and, and continue to let her let them shake her down, she, she, one of her partners failed the hand-washing module. Can you imagine that? This is Actually, just, he just turned it in a few days late. He yes. didn't fail it. Right. Uh, he turned it in a few days late, right? This is this is just this is just ludicrous, and um, this is the kind of nonsense that has zero to do with um, public demand or with quality of care. It's an it's it's an opportunity for these boards to cash in on the CME gravy train because the American Medical Association did a really good job of that for many years, and the specialty boards were left out, and they tried to figure out a way that they could they could. Uh, um, dip their toe in the water and get some of that money. And and we're not talking about a little bit of money. We're talking about when you take the composite amount of money that these boards make on their activities. We're talking about something in the neighborhood of between four and five hundred million dollars a year. So well, this is this is big bucks that they don't want to let go of. And my impression right. if I remember the numbers correctly is that the salaries of the folks who are at the top of this food chain have similarly risen from about $300,000 a year to about eight hundred, well, $850,000 Chris, a year. Christine Castle, the, the person that uh, Dick mentioned before, left the American Board of Internal Medicine having made $1.7 million. And that, and right, that, and many many of these people that are doing this are, are not certified. Their grandfather, they weren't. They have not taken the test that they're that they're making everybody else take. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's right. Yeah. Although for us, hopefully that adds to our credibility because maybe in the next segment we'll get into this. But I, I did a little, sort of accidentally did this little town hall meeting this past Saturday, and when I was talking about it, folks were asking if I had to take the test over again, and uh, and we were we were grandfathered. I'm grandfathered in. Uh, Anyhow, we're at the at a hard break here. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. And we are back in the last segment of the Doctor's Lounge. This is Dr. Hal Schurz with Dr. Michael Karuchik and Dr. Dick Armstrong. We've been talking today about a number of topics, CMS and uh, meaningful use in macro. We uh, have... Uh, uh, in the last segment, uh, dove in a little bit into maintenance of certification and uh, the the corruption at the top of the uh, food chain of all the uh, medical specialty boards, and how they're shaking down their constituents. And uh, some some doctors are actually fighting back. But um, Mike, you were you were um, uh, uh, lucky enough to participate in in a forum. Uh, over the weekend, and, and this topic came up, weren't you? Well, it's an interesting little sidebar, Hal. It, you know, as a part of this open letter to Andy Slavitt that I wrote and posted on my blog and tweeted and put Andy Slavitt's Twitter handle and the rest I've already talked about, uh, I've got some folks in the IT community who are kind enough to retweet relevant stuff that I happen to put on Twitter. And one thing that happened was to get invited to this Twitter-based event with a technology I'd never heard of before, and it's called Blab, like B-L-A-B, like you're blabbing something around Blab. And I had no idea what this was, but there was a Blab event that was going on at 9 o'clock this past Saturday morning in response to all this stuff that was happening with the Andy Slavitt letter on Thursday and Friday. And I, I didn't give it a lot of thought at the time. Of course, I was happy to participate. And uh, I, you know, I rolled out of bed at 8.45 on Saturday morning, and without even so much as rolling open an eye, I loaded this Blab application and, and clicked on the link that I was given to join. And the next thing I know, you know, there's my just-out-of-bed face on a video conference with four other people and an audience of about 50, at least if I was reading the dashboard correctly. And, and fortunately, it didn't look like anyone else had actually you know, dressed to the nines for the thing, thank heaven. But after getting over that frightening shock of seeing my own face in that condition, it, it turned out to be um, a rather interesting one-hour experience. It took a little while to get the audio right and all that kind of stuff, but uh, a very interesting, engaged audience. The, the topic that was being discussed 
on the front end was social media for patients. And we had talked a little bit about, you know, patients with chronic diseases forming their own support groups and using social media to promote that kind of thing. And all of that conversation was benign enough. But then the next thing you know, about 20 minutes into something like this, the topic of maintenance of certification comes up. And there were two other doctors on the in, on the panel, I guess you'd call it, for lack of a better term, the faces that were talking. And the comments about maintenance of certification were incredibly benign and it was a reminder of what we're up against in terms of an educational mission and part of the problem is number one folks just assume that their leadership is doing things correctly and doing things that in their benevolently benevolently right you know you pay us your dues and we will look out for you that's kind of the implicit arrangement uh, and it turns out not to be that way and part of it is you know doctors you know our personalities are such that we are pleasers right we you know took our track to medical school from the early days of our youth we pleased our parents we pleased our teachers we went to college we pleased our professors we went to medical school and residency and pleased our attendings and when we got out the assumption was that we wanted to please everybody that we worked with patients of course uh, but you know hospitals and insurance companies and the upper levels of the of the food chain in in our respective medical specialties uh, and that behavior turns out to be very maladaptive Adaptive once the people you're trying to please aren't really looking out for you. And it was an interesting conversation on this blab uh, to the point where next week, and I'm hoping you guys will join me in this blab, uh, that the, the topic is now maintenance of certification for next week's discussion. How so timely. Interesting. Yes, how timely indeed. So, Dick, you know, you've had the opportunity recently of working with some people who who uh, are new to uh, many of the ideas that we talk about all the time, and uh, it's 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 been um, an interesting experience educating these doctors who are um, wanting to understand but uh, really don't have the background just yet. Well, there are there are doctors waking up all over the country, and and uh, as as you remember, last summer we the three of us went to a meeting that uh, was put on by a, a new group. Uh, the meeting was called the Summit at the Summit, put, put on uh, with the theme of "Let My Doctor Practice" by four physicians who began all of this uh, based upon a letter to the Wall Street Journal that one of them wrote, an orthopedic surgeon, Dan Craviato from California, wrote a letter to the Wall Street Journal that just basically said, I've had enough of this. Uh, We need a a physician's declaration of independence. And this uh, brought these people together, all, all together in Keystone, Colorado, who felt the same way that we all have felt for about the last five to six years or more. And that is, uh, they basically said, there's too many people outside of the medical profession telling doctors how to do their work. We've been trained for years in medical school, years in residency, and then years in practice. We know what we're doing. Why do all these people outside of the, the sphere of medicine think that they have to tell us what to do? This is, uh, this is gaining momentum, and now more recently there's a group of uh, thousands of women doctors called physicians working together who've asked us to to become involved and just talk to them because they're also interested in learning about all of these things. 
so the movement is is growing and it's growing more rapidly than I think we expected and like at the beginning of the program, uh, Mike, you said every single day something happens. Well, on this past Saturday, something happened. The blab happened. And these things just keep coming up every day, something new. And that's a great thing because people are beginning to become interested in learning. And you know what, Dick, this is, this is a, a reason why doctors need to stay engaged and, with their patients and with themselves and their colleagues and not check out because... Despite the the fact that we might be at a point in history where things seem like they're at their darkest, it's always, and this is cliche, but it's always darkest before the dawn. And we're seeing changes on a daily basis. We're seeing doctors waking up. We're seeing patients waking up because they're spending so much money on on out of their own pocket and looking for alternatives like the direct primary care. Um, movement that's going on around the country that we are so involved in. And and so I think that it's important for doctors to, to not give in, not give up. I think it's important for patients to understand that there are doctors out there um, who are truly interested in them, even though it may seem like um, everybody is losing interest in this, and and um, and and that they should engage their doctors and talk to them about these these issues that are, are so vitally important to everybody. But before I leave, I just before I forget, and Mike was talking about about Twitter. I want to just give out if you if you like what you hear on this radio show all the time, send us some tweets. You know. We're tweeting about our show every week when we put it out there. And I'm at Dr. Hal Atlanta, and Mike is at Dr. Mike Karuchak. That's K-O-R-I-W-C-H-A-K. Dang. And so so make sure sure that you just um, tweet us and and follow us and and, uh, watch the things that we're putting out there because we're putting all this stuff out there that's, that's good stuff and and uh and follow the docs for patient care foundation on our website and at our facebook page where dick armstrong is doing the lion's share of the writing and uh and trying to get everyone in the country some information that uh, you'll be able to use so that you'll be able to talk intelligently about health care we got four minutes dick before we wrap up, so would you? Why don't you? Why don't you take us out from this show? Some closing remarks. Well, I would just say the closing remarks are that the, probably the biggest theme that's going on right now is that the even though with the Affordable Care Act and many of the things that have happened over the last fifty years, the federal government is finally beginning to realize that there is a limit to the amount of money that the federal government can spend on trying to to um, control American health care and the American health care economy. And patients are beginning to see and doctors are beginning to see that things are happening outside of the federal control of health care. Direct primary care, which is a direct relationship between a primary care doctor and a membership model uh, and a patient, is happening all over the country. And that's what our meeting is going to be about in Dallas, Texas. 
Uh, our president, Dr. Lee Gross, uh, is the founder of a direct primary care practice, Epiphany Direct Care in Florida, and we know so many other great direct primary care doctors around the country, and this is an exciting, rapidly growing movement. Uh, Dr. Keith Smith has developed the Surgical Center of Oklahoma uh, in Oklahoma City, which is a completely cash um, surgical center, uh, no third-party payments, and uh, he has patients coming from not only all 50 states, but Canada and other nations to get his care, to get care there, and it's very high quality. And it, the interesting thing is that the patients uh, don't have some third-party payer trying to figure out what the value or the quality is. The value and the quality is obvious to the patient. It's obvious because they're getting what they want. And That's it, right. it's 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 great to have you on the show. And, and Mike... Um, this this has been fun. We we don't do this enough. Well, it's 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 great to sort of acknowledge that you know when, when how you talked about it being darkest before the dawn and the sky's getting brighter. I, I think partly because of social media, partly because I think uh, Obamacare and meaningful use kind of pushed us as a group close enough to the edge that it was that we had time to take action. But I think there's a growing number of docs realizing that patient advocacy and patient care does doesn't end at the exam room, doesn't end in the operating room, uh, doesn't end going to doctors-only meetings, uh, that things are beginning to grow and doctors are finding each other, they are learning from each other, they are refining the message, gaining wisdom. Uh, there's a growing number of physicians who are writing large you know, books, kind of like Jim Bailey and uh, Robert Wachter, and uh, although David Goldhill's not a physician, obviously a, a very good book about uh, catastrophic care and you know you, you you bundle all these things together and uh, you get what my old department chairman used to call critical mass and right. we are we are getting close to that point and every time you have you know like you said something happening every day um, you know you get the sense that we're we're getting fairly close to breaking it open Absolutely. I think so. Critical mass plus tipping point equals revolution. Indeed. Mm -hmm. And uh, we may be. And it'll be huge. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I want to thank everyone for listening to the doc, for the uh, coming into the doctor's lounge today on America's Web Radio. And uh, next week, uh, Mike Karuchuk will be back uh, in the seat uh, solo and uh, bringing you, again, the kind of information that you need to fight for your health care freedom. Thank you for joining us. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.